Welcome to the podcast of Seven Rivers Villages Church in Wildwood, Florida. We are a multi-generational community of grace on mission, and you are always invited to join us online or in person. Learn more about us at sevenriversvillages.org. passage today, and uh, so I'm going to let you remain seated. I think you can honor God by remaining seated as well as standing, which is what we normally do. Uh, where we're going with this uh, this morning is uh, last week we looked at a passage uh, about the Lord's Supper where it was instituted, and uh, if we were doing that today, it would have been perfect, but that gives you a chance to reflect on what we talked about last week. Uh, but this is at the end of the Lord's Supper, and uh, Jesus and his apostles are getting ready to go to the Garden of Gethsemane, and Jesus is going to be betrayed, arrested. And uh, so this is a pretty poignant passage. There are a lot of verses here. We're going to do our best to talk about some of the main themes this morning. And so uh, you can read along. I think we have a passage on the screen behind me. And uh, this is the word of the Lord in Mark chapter 14, starting with verse 27. And Jesus said to them, you will all fall away. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter said to him, even, if, even though they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, truly I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said emphatically, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. And they went to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping, and he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again he went and prayed, saying the same words. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. And immediately, while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now the betrayer had given them a sign saying, The one I will kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. And when he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi, and he kissed him. And they laid hands on him and seized him. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to them, Have you come out as, as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But let the scriptures be fulfilled. 
and they all left him and fled. And a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body, and they seized him, but he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. And they led Jesus to the high priest, and all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together, and Peter had followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest, and he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Yet even about this their testimony did not agree. And the high priest, priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of the power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and said, What further witnesses do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. And some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to strike him, saying to him, Prophesy! And the guards received him with blows. And as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came, and seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, You also were with the Nazarene, Jesus. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. And he went out into the gateway, and the rooster crowed. And the servant girl saw him and began again to say to the bystanders, This man is one of them. But again he denied it. And after a little while, the bystanders again said to Peter, Certainly you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. But he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. And immediately the rooster crowed a second time. And Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and wept. This is the word of the Lord. It's all true. And if you will let it in, it can transform your life. Let me pray for us. This is a sobering passage, Lord Jesus. Sobering because we see you that we love and we cherish we long to see face-to-face -face being so brutally treated, falsely treated. When you should have been praised, you were mocked and beaten. And yet at the same time, in the midst of this, we see your majesty and your glory, your greatness, and we hear one of the clearest expressions on your lips during your earthly ministry of your identity and who you are. We pray that you would enable us to take this whole passage and Work it into our hearts and into our souls. Would you bless us and would you be with us? Would you bless your word as I proclaim it? I, <laughs> I feel more like Peter than anybody else in this passage, denying when I should profess. And this morning I find myself being weak again. So please, bless your people. And cause your word to be proclaimed. We ask it in Jesus' holy name. Amen. 
I've got a quote this morning uh, from Steve Brown. Uh, he has a wonderful deep voice. He's a writer and a speaker, and I'm not going to do his voice for long, but uh, that's about it. Um, Steve Brown. He said, if you are reading a biography of a great Christian, and that biography doesn't tell you the bad as well as the good, burn the book. It's a lie, and it will only make you feel guilty. I remember when I found out that Donald Gray Barnhouse felt jealous of Billy Graham, that C.S. Lewis had a weird relationship with a substitute mother, that Charles Spurgeon went through months of depression and refused to preach because of it, that Martin Luther wrote anti-Semitic pamphlets, that, well, you get the idea. Each time one of my heroes fell off the pedestal, I was devastated until I realized that God wanted to teach me something important. He uses sinful and flawed human beings because those are the only kinds of human beings he has available to use. <laughs> so, as we come into this passage, we see once again, this gospel, the gospel was never about what we do for Jesus. The gospel is never about what we do for God. The gospel was always about something and lots of things that God would do for us. That's the gospel. So in this passage, Jesus tells us who he is, what he's doing, why he's doing it, and we'll talk a little bit about his identity and a little bit about ourselves this morning as we get ready to come to the table. So the identity of Jesus is revealed here. Now, it was common, I think, for years for people to say, uh, and I, I used to hear people saying this 30 years ago, people would say, we don't even know if Jesus was a real person. Have you ever heard somebody say that? I don't hear people saying that in the same way anymore because there's too much historical information about Jesus out there to, say, to show us he was a real person. Uh, there's, so all the extra biblical things that we have, all the references to Jesus in ancient writings from the time period show he was a real person, a real historical person. So in the modern world, people will say something a little bit different because we can't deny that Jesus was a real person. So people will say, well, you know, Christians invented the idea that he was God, but Jesus never said that he was God. Jesus never said that. His apostles said that. His followers said that. But Jesus himself never said that. And the answer is, oh, yes, he did. Right here in this passage, right, right here, Mark chapter 14. I want, we're going to take a little bit of a look and dive into this portion because I think it's significant for us in thinking about who Jesus is and what he was doing. So Mark 14, 6, 61 to 62 says, but Jesus remained silent and made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? Now, Matthew 26, verse 63 says that it was actually not just say answer the question. The high priest actually put it as a, as a question in a court of law. So what he said was, I adjure you by the living God, Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. So he's put, Je he's put Jesus under oath. And so Jesus, under oath, gives this response. He said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. So what he's just given us is the truth about who he is. It's, it's, it's a truth that's compressed and packed. It's weighty. And so we're going to try to unpack it a little bit. We don't have all the, a lot of time to be able to do this, so I'm just going to touch on things, and hopefully you'll jot these down and do a little research yourself. Uh, there's some good stuff online, and then there's the other stuff. Find the good stuff about this. Okay, so the Christ. So they ask, are you the Christ? Throughout the Old Testament, 
God promised to send a king to rule over the cosmos, to remove all evil, and to bring in a kingdom of peace and righteousness and flourishing for everyone who is in that kingdom, who call upon the name of Jesus. So Jesus acknowledges that he is the fulfillment of that. Now, in the Old Testament, sometimes that figure of the Christ or the Messiah, as he's called, the anointed one of God, uh, it, it, it's, he seems to be a divine figure, not just a human king, but something more. So that's at least hinting at this divine reality of Jesus the Christ. But Jesus actually says more than that here. So the, the chief priest adjures him and to say, are you the son of the blessed? Now that's a roundabout way for Jews in the first century to talk about God because they didn't like speaking of God directly. So instead of talking about the kingdom of God, they would often say the kingdom of heaven. So when he says the son of the blessed one or the blessed, Jews in that day would understand him to be saying, are you the son of God? And in the parallel passage that we just read, it actually says the son of God, which would make Jesus equal to God. So Jesus is professing under oath his divinity, that he really is God in the flesh. Then he says something else in his answer which is pretty amazing, is when they ask you this, he says, I am. Now, what's amazing about this, and commentators across the board point this out, is Jesus is not just answering the question. He's given the Old Testament name of God. So if you look at the, back in Exodus chapter 3, verse 14, when Moses is saying, well, I'm going to Pharaoh, who am I supposed to say is sending me? And God gives his name. He says, uh, tell them that, this is in Exodus three fourteen. He says, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel and to Pharaoh. I am has sent me to you. And this isn't the only time that Jesus claimed that he was the Old Testament God, I am. In, in uh, John chapter 8, verse 58, Jesus is speaking to a group of Jews. And he said, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. And so at this point, they picked up stones to stone him because they recognized he's making a claim to divinity. He's claiming to be the Old Testament God in the flesh. That's pretty amazing. And then when we read about Son of Man, uh, we typically think that's a, a reference to Jesus' humanity. But more and more, I've heard scholars say, no, that wasn't a reference to his humanity. That was a reference to his deity. And so we have this in Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 to 14. And you can hear echoes of this in the music in the, the verses we've been reading this morning, I read it as we started worship. We see this, it says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him, the son of man, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So this is Jesus' identity. He's the Christ. He's the son of the living God. He's the son of man. He's the great I am of the Old Testament dwelling in the flesh among human, human people. And they didn't recognize him because he looked just like you and me, an ordinary person. So the great king over all took on human flesh and lived among us. So how are they supposed to recognize him? 
if he looked just like you and me? Well, I don't know if you've seen, it's a, I think it's become more of a holiday classic now. It's, uh, and I'm going to say this, and all the guys are going to tune me out, and all the, the women are, some of the women are going to say, I love that movie. Tom Hanks and Meg Ryan, and some of you are like, you had me at Tom Hanks. Um, Tom Hanks and Meg Ryan, you've got mail. You ever see that? Okay. That one's based on an old Jimmy Stewart, Jimmy Stewart movie called The Shop Around the Corner. And Rebecca and I watched this this past year. And in the shop around the corner, Jimmy Stewart's working in a little shop with this, uh, with this woman. And uh, they, you know, they, there's kind of some, like, tension between the two of them, romantic tension. But she has a pen pal that she's been writing letters to. And she is in love with the man who's been writing these letters. And so she's going to finally meet her pen pal. And so how are they going to recognize one another? Well, the pen pal is going to walk into uh, the the cafe where she is and he's going to have a particular flower in his lapel and she's going to have a book on the table it's uh Tolstoy's Anna Karenina Karenina whatever you said Karenina I looked at it this morning but like when I'm up here in front of you I can't say it right so you know what I'm talking about this old book but uh so as he walks in it's Jimmy Stewart and he recognizes she's in love with the person who's been writing the letters and she doesn't know it's me I want her to be in love with me so he pulls out the lapel so she can't recognize him. So then he goes and wins her over. Spoiler. Sorry about that. I had to just do that. So, um, if you saw the Tom Hanks movie, you've already seen it. So there you go. So how are, we, how are they supposed to recognize Jesus coming in? Well, the Old Testament over and over and over gave prophecies of Jesus coming. Over 300. So when Jesus was there, they're watching fulfillment after fulfillment take place. There's another part where Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night, John chapter 3. And he says, we know that you've come from God because you're performing signs and miracles. So Jesus had all the marks of this person coming from the Old Testament, being embodied and dwelling among us. But they couldn't accept that. There's a quote from Charles Hodge about being a Christian. He, you know, a lot of times we say being a Christian means I believe that, God is, that, I believe that Jesus has paid for my sins. And it is that. But it's more than that. It's believing in Jesus who paid for our sins. Not just that he did something, but believing him fully and completely and what he's done for us. Charles Hodge, he said, A Christian is one who recognizes Jesus as the Christ, the Son of the living God, as God manifested in the flesh, loving us and dying for our redemption, and who is so affected by a sense of the love of this incarnate God as to be constrained to make the will of Christ the rule of his obedience and the glory of Christ the great end for which he lives. Jesus is the centerpiece of history. And for a person who comes to recognize who Jesus is, Jesus becomes the centerpiece of our lives. He's the one that makes it all hold together. This is the reason I do what I do and believe what I believe and say what I say. And so this is the Jesus who's here before these Jewish leaders, and with a word from his mouth, the Son of Man could have just completely wiped the planet free of, of them. He could have done that, but he didn't because he didn't come here to destroy his enemies. He came here to die for his enemies. Uh, and this is what we see as we go through the passage is uh, Jesus came to die at the hands of these people to fulfill the Old Testament, just as he said in this passage. Now, as you read the trial here, everything about Jesus' arrest broke legal code. They did everything they weren't supposed to do because they were so fired up to have Jesus killed. 
they, were, they had no real evidence, and this is what we would call a kangaroo court, right? They're so bent on achieving a particular end, they're not looking at any of the evidence. They didn't really care about the truth. In fact, it says here in the passage that they were looking really just to kill Jesus. We're looking for reasons to kill him. That's the goal. They, and so they cared only about what they would lose if Jesus continued his ascent to power in their eyes. So because these men were the prominent ones in Israel, if Jesus continued on that track, it was going to displace them and they were going to lose their privileged position, which they didn't want to do. So we've got to find a way to eliminate Jesus from this. But there's a second motive that might have been here, is if Jesus continued his ascent to power, that was going to call down the Roman occupying force upon them, and then they would really lose their place at the hands of the Romans. And so probably that's what they were telling themselves, is we're protecting the people. This is about the people, when it really wasn't. It was really about them. And so they arrested Jesus when none of the people were around in the middle of a garden at night. So it's a quote from a counselor I came across recently, and it's, it's really fascinating because it's true. I've experienced this, you've experienced this, but it really made me think a lot about Jesus in this. And she said, here's a hard truth. Some people will never ask you for your side of the story because the side that they heard fits the description of how they want to feel about you. Isn't that interesting? That's what they're doing with Jesus. And we don't want to hear your story. We don't want to, we don't want to we don't want real testimony. We just want testimony that condemns you because that's what we want. And so as we come into this passage, Jesus is feeling this pressure from them, but that's not really what worries him. That's not really what he's scared of in the passage. What he's looking to is what's going to happen on the cross, and he's already beginning this journey. He sees on the horizon the suffering that is going to take place. So in chapter 14, verse 36, he prays, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but you will. That terrifies him. And he's not being a coward. He's just cognizant of what he's about to go through. He understands this, right? He's going to take on the sin of all who call upon his name. I want you to imagine this for just a second. Um, ratting myself out. I got in trouble in second grade. I've been in trouble other times, but this is a story I could tell. Second grade, uh, we were in the cafeteria. Mike Jones, Skeet Sowell, some other guys that were in my class, we decided we wanted to play with our straws and our mashed potatoes. And so they were in the mashed potatoes and then on each other. Miss um, Lindsay, my second grade teacher, did not like this at all. And she told us to stop. So we did. And then we started again, because it was awesome. And uh, so when we get back to class, she calls us into the front of the class. And I don't know how people got away from, with this sort of thing in, in that day and age. You couldn't do it today. She made us hold out our hands, and she took her ruler and just paddled our hands till they were red. And so, of course, you can cry in front of everybody, except... One guy said, I've got blisters on this side of my hand. She made him turn his hand over and do it on this side, which is even worse. And so I was thinking, okay, how does that relate? Y'all are like, how does that relate to this passage? Um, here's how it relates to the passage. That was pretty painful just receiving it from me. But what if I had stood in front of everybody in that 
classroom and said, I am going to take the punishments for everybody in this class for the rest of the year. So whatever you have done, whatever you're going to do, I'm going to receive the punishment for, the, for that. Now, the reality is that's just the mashed potato punishment, right? But when we look at what Scripture says about Jesus taking our punishment on himself, it's not mashed potatoes. It's crimes against a holy and righteous God, defaming him, rejecting him. And what's the crime for that? Or what's the penalty for that? The Bible says it's hell forever, and it uses images like fire and darkness and weeping and gnashing of teeth to describe the, what we deserve for rejecting God this way. And what we see in this passage is God himself saying, if I don't do this, you're going to have to face the wrath, but I love you too much to let you face the wrath. I'm going to take it on myself for all of you who believe. So on the cross 2,000 years ago, Jesus is watching this oncoming storm. This is the old black and white grainy video of a, an atomic bomb blast going off. And I don't know how they got it, but it's, there's, a, there's a video, it's, it's a video, there's a house off in the distance. And as the concussive blast hits this, the house just completely implodes and erupts and it's just gone. Jesus can see this coming. He sees the separation from God and the spiritual torment that's going to be his. And he's praying in the garden and he sweats. And he knows that either we drink this cup or he drinks this cup. And because he loves us, he says, I'm going to drink this cup. Not my will, but your will be done. So as difficult as it is to read this passage and see what Jesus suffered for us, we, I think we are supposed to read it and say, this is what Jesus did for us. He loves us. He went to that. And every time I read this passage, Jesus is not back up on that cross. That's over 2,000 years ago, right? He's, he's now celebrating the victory that he has won for all those who, have called, who call upon his name. And when we come to the table, which is the celebration of the Passover, you know, it was instituted during the Passover. The Passover for the Jews celebrated something that happened in the past, right? And we're not back in Egypt. We're out of Egypt. And in the same way, when we come to this table, we don't have to get ourselves back into that sense of, oh, no, I'm, I'm, I'm far from God and I'm distant from God. We come to this table because this table is a mark of the victory of Jesus. He's already paid it. He's already done it. He's accomplished our salvation. And we come to this table, we come saying, he has done it and he's accomplished it because he loves us. And as we come back into this passage, uh, I think we really begin to see how we, we, we live this out. Because there's a person probably most of us are like here, and it's Peter. And we read his story um, of when he denied Jesus. We're going to start with verse uh, 27. And Jesus said to them, You will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. But after I'm raised up, I will go before you into Galilee. And Peter said to him, Even though they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, truly, I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said emphatically, if I must die with you, I, I, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. And we go a little bit further into the passage. He's already denied Jesus twice. And he denied it again. This is picking up in verse 70. And after a little while, the bystanders again said to Peter, 
Certainly you are one of them, for you're a Galilean. But he began to invoke a curse on himself and swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. And immediately the rooster crowed a second time, and Peter remembered how Jesus said to him, Before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. Peter broke down and wept. I was reading that and kind of thinking about it this week and how I've seen this addressed by pastors and preachers. And sometimes there have been sermons I've heard or seen referenced, and and the sermon is really about how to avoid Peter's mistake here. Like, and so they kind of dissect the passage, almost like a, you know, the airline when a plane kind of goes down and everything. They kind of like go through the pieces and say, okay, how can we prevent this for the future? And so looking at this passage, what are the mistakes that Peter made in this passage? And then maybe you can avoid them. But I'm not sure that's what we're supposed to look at in this passage and see. I think what we're supposed to look at in this passage and see is that Peter is a a believer in Jesus who failed spectacularly. He's a believer in Jesus who failed and was completely brokenhearted about it. But in the midst of all of it, he still believed. And that means that you can fail spectacularly and still be belong to Jesus, believe, and be restored. The Bible is full of stories like this, people who failed in big ways and then having to carry that afterwards. Uh, some of y'all are familiar with a, a, was a modern speaker. He died several years ago, a guy named Brennan Manning. Brennan Manning was a, an author. He was a speaker. And it was after he began his speaking engagements and tours that he uh, fell into alcoholism, substance abuse. And uh, as he was uh, dealing with this, he said, you know, it's one thing to have been an alcoholic and then become a Christian and struggle. He says, there's a lot more stigma for somebody who is a Christian and then becomes an alcoholic. Like, how could that possibly happen? And this is a quote he had, which I think is really helpful pastorally for us. He said, there's a myth flourishing in the church today that has caused incalculable harm. Once I accept Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior, an irreversible, sinless future beckons. Discipleship will be an untarnished success story. Life will be an unbroken spiral towards holiness. And he says, tell that to poor Peter, who after swearing oh so faithfully that he of all Jesus' disciples would never abandon him, denied him three times. Now I think what's fascinating as you look at Peter's story, I really think Peter had to go through this for him to really understand the grace of the gospel and to get over his spiritual self-sufficiency. And I've seen for years that when people go through a broken thing in their life and they can't avoid it, that's when the gospel actually clicks for them. That's when they really understand it. So the church I was at previously, there was a man in our church uh, who had had a very, very difficult life, very hard life, and uh, he started substance abuse when he was much younger, like very young, and became a Christian and continued to struggle for a long time with that. And it was interesting watching him because he, had a, he struggled with alcohol and drugs. He went to prison. Uh, he was fighting a losing battle to retain his toes with uh, uh, diabetes. It was just, he was in a very difficult place. And uh, no one in our church would ever have made him a leader in the church, which would have been right. He didn't need to be a leader in the church. Uh, But it was interesting watching because the leaders had the respect of the people in the church. Uh, But this man 
had something that the leaders did not have. He had Jesus in a way they didn't have. The way that he talked about Jesus, the way he prayed to Jesus, showed a deeper intimacy, a deeper understanding, a deeper love, a deeper gratitude than any of the leaders that were in the church. And it was fascinating to watch because the leaders spoke with theological and spiritual jargon and slogans, and they prayed with high and lofty language. But, but this man prayed to God as you would pray to a friend with that kind of intimacy and affection, that kind of dependence, that kind of trust, no pretense. Uh, he, he prayed as somebody who had seen God get him through prison and get him through rehab and getting through the difficult things that were taking place in his life. And it was interesting because Rebecca and I, when we found ourselves talking to him, we found that he had a wealth of wisdom about the gospel that other people did not have. The leaders gave advice as bullet points, and, and this man, when you were talking to him, only talked about Jesus, only Jesus. It's fascinating to watch this, and I've seen this with many other people uh, uh, through the years, is that when we believe uh, when we understand our brokenness is when we see Jesus. This is a quote from Elizabeth Kubler-Ross. She said, The most beautiful people I have known are those who have known defeat, known suffering, known struggle, known loss, and have found their way out of the depths. These persons have an appreciation, a sensitivity, and an understanding of life that fills them with compassion, gentleness, and a deep loving concern. Beautiful people do not just happen. And when you go through that, that's when you see God begin to use you. And this is from A.W. Tozer. God never uses anyone greatly until he tests them deeply. And I think that's what Peter went through. Peter went through a time of very deep testing. He rejected, he denied Jesus his Savior. But this is an amazing thing. In Acts chapter 4, which isn't very long after this, Peter and John are brought before the very same group of people that had Jesus killed, had him crucified. They're brought before the same ones to give testimony to why uh, they're preaching in Jesus' name. And this is what he says. He says, salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven, heaven given to men by which we must be saved. Now, Peter didn't say this because he was strong. Peter said this because the gospel was now strong in him, because it's all he had. He denied Jesus. He needed that kind of grace. There was a power in the gospel. There was a power in the cross of Christ. There was a power in the resurrection of Jesus. The gospel doesn't call us to dig down deep into the recesses of who we are as individual people and draw all these great things out of ourselves. No, the gospel calls us to run to Jesus and say, in him is the power, in him is the love, in him is all the resources. He's the one who saves me. He's the one who rescues me. He paid my debt, and now he's poured out his spirit upon me to give me strength. The God of the universe, the only God, took on flesh to die for us that we might live. He is comfortable with our brokenness, and he bids us to come. How many of us in here would have written off those who denied and those who fled who were frightened? Jesus didn't. And Jesus doesn't. He went to the cross for such people. He, doesn't, he didn't die for people who used to be cowards. He dies for people who are in the midst of our cowardice. He didn't die for people who used to be broken. 
He dies for people who still are broken and who know it and run to his cross. We have a good Savior, and he loves us. Let me pray for us. I think we all have had a, most of us, maybe all of us, have had a Peter moment where we look at ourselves and see the way we have failed you. We've failed to cling to what we have professed. Uh, We have done something. We have said something. We've engaged in something. And we have found ourselves uh, having to face the reality that we never stopped needing you. We pray that you would help us to live there, to realize that we never stop needing you, that in the guilt, the things, the, the internal bitterness that we sometimes feel about the mistakes we've made in the past, that you, you are as accepting us as you ever have been or ever will be. You love us despite our sin. And to recognize that we still are capable of those types of things in our lives and we need you and we need your power daily. Would you bless us? At the moment where we are struggling and failing, we ask, Lord, that you would give us a vision of you in your power, in your majesty, in your humanity, and in your suffering, saying that our sin and our struggle will never keep us from you because you've taken on the big battle. You've defeated our sin. You've taken away it all. and We can rest fully and completely in you. Thank you for your cross, Lord Jesus. Bless us we continue to worship. We ask it in your name. Amen. Thank you for joining us on this podcast, a production of Seven Rivers Villages Church in Wildwood, Florida. Learn more at sevenriversvillages.org.